The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this morning, The Christian's Conflict. The Christian's Conflict, part two, Romans chapter seven, verses 14 through 25. Once again, brothers and sisters, we, we take up now Paul's epistle to the church at Rome, where in chapter 7, we find the apostle Paul now in the midst of an intensely personal defense of the law of God, in vindicating the law as holy, just, and good, in defending the law, as it were, from unjust objections uh, and in vindicating the law, Paul re- relies now on his own experience as an unconverted man in verses 7 through 13, and now relies on his own experience as a converted man in verses 14 through 25. Now, in doing so, in relying upon his own experience, Paul demonstrates through the common experience of all men under the law that the fundamental universal problem of sin, condemnation, and death lies not with the nature of the law, but entirely lies within the nature of man. Paul considers his own reflection, as it were, as he looks into the the perfect mirror of God's own law, the perfect law that reflects back to him, the perfect character of the one who gave it, as much as it reflects back to Paul, his own character. And he understands that, that, that all he can do now is to render the same verdict that we all would render as we look into the perfect law of God. We know then that the law is spiritual. It is holy, just, and good, but I am carnal, sold under sin. It's the verdict, the judgment that Paul comes to in looking at or considering the perfect law of God. The issue that we have at hand that we've considered in this text so far is how can Paul say that as a Christian man? How can Christians say... I'm carnal, sold under sin. What does Paul mean by what he says? Well, if you've ever truly examined yourself in the light of the law, if you ever looked inward at your own heart, mind, and flesh in light of the the searing spotlight of God's law upon you, then you know what Paul's talking about here. His words resonate with you as a Christian. C.H. Spurgeon tells you exactly how you felt about it. Listen to Spurgeon. You abhorred yourself. You said, who can stand before this terrible law? Who can ever hope to keep these commandments? You looked to the flames that Moses saw on Sinai, and you shrank and trembled almost unto despair. Can you relate to that? You entreated that these terrible words should not be spoken to you anymore. Yet it was good for you thus to be made to know the law. Not in the letter of it only, but in its cutting, crushing, killing spirit. For it worketh death to self-righteousness and death to all carnal boastings. When the law comes, sin revives and we die. That is all that can come of it by itself. Yet it is necessary that there should be such a death as that. That there should be such a revival of sin that we may know the truth about it and under the force of that truth may be driven to the Lord Jesus Christ who is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. Law serves a good purpose, doesn't it? 
in stark contrast to the holiness, justice, and goodness that reigns through the law, Paul looks within, looks within the faculties of his own soul and sees a principle there of sin that still remains through the flesh. And Paul is not referring to reigning sin or dominating sin as one who lives in the flesh, but he is speaking of remaining sin as one who continues to be fleshly. We are indeed dead to sin through our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are indeed freed from the dominion of sin in the Christian life. And yet due to the remaining exertions of that principle of sin that is still at work in our members, which is manifest through our ongoing battle with sin, manifest in our ongoing sin, our sensed experience may only be adequately expressed in the words of Paul from this text, O wretched man that I am. Paul says, with the mind, I'm serving the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Now, Paul is not speaking here as a lost man still enslaved to sin. He's not a lost man under the dominion of sin any longer. And he's not speaking as a lost man looking for an excuse. We need to make that very clear. But Paul is speaking with an anguish of heart. An anguish of heart that is characteristic of a saved man or woman, boy or girl, that is still engaged in the fight. An anguish of heart that is provoked in a Christian when remaining sin comes into conflict with his renewed will. Right? An anguish of heart provoked within him when sin betrays or opposes renewed affections and renewed joys and renewed loves and renewed desires. It's an anguish of heart provoked in a Christian when we see our sin in the light of God's holy law as opposed to the very character of the one who saved us, opposed to the very character of the one who gave himself in death to redeem us from that filth, from that garbage. And it's in the person and work of Jesus Christ where that godly sorrow, that anguish of heart gives, give, gives way to repentance and to joy. It's only in Jesus Christ that we have joy in the midst of that, amen? We don't glorify God by ignoring or excusing the reality of remaining sin. You're not going to glorify God by turning a blind eye or a deaf ear to that principle of sin that exists within your members, within the faculties of your soul. You're not going to glorify God through ignoring it. And Paul's not calling us here to ignore it. He's calling us, charging us to deal with it. But you're also not going to glorify God by wallowing in despair over it either. We serve the Lord Christ, and he has promised that sin will not have dominion over us. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning, right? I love to take that word morning there and replace it with morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Right? There's joy that comes at the end of true repentance. 
God-given repentance. Joy through Jesus Christ. This wretched man that I am will be delivered, praise God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Romans 7 doesn't represent the whole of the Christian life or the sum of the Christian life. Romans 7 is simply a part. It's a very important part, and it is a significant part of our Christian experience. But it is a part nonetheless. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy through faith in Jesus Christ comes in superabounding grace in the morning. The last week in part one, we began together to consider the Christian's conflict, in point one on your notes, in our present conduct. Our present conduct. Look at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual. In light of all that we've understood in Paul's experience, his past experience as an unconverted man, we know then, don't we? In our own experience, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, Paul says, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. Now the reason for Paul's anguish of heart is this. Paul, try as he may, labor as he may, strive as he may, Paul has been unable to live up to the standard of righteousness on which he has set his heart. The genuine Christian, you and I, brother and sister, we have our hearts set on pursuing righteousness. The heart of the Christian hungers and thirsts for righteousness. So Paul has set his heart on this standard of righteousness to which he has been unable to date to attain to. It's a righteousness that he sees in the Lord who bought him. And it's a righteousness that evades him because of this principle of sin that exists within his members. He's been unable to live in full conformity with the one upon whom he has set his heart. And that failure has been exposed and continues to be exposed, continues to be revealed by the law. The law is not evil in that sense. The law is holy, just, and good in revealing sin to Paul. But the anguish of heart is because Paul finds it, finds himself unable to live up to the standard, so to speak, that he set his heart on, the standard of righteousness. The sin that Paul begins to speak of here is not the unrestrained, unchallenged, or unbroken pattern of sin, impenitent sin that marks or characterizes the lost man, the habitual sin that reigns unrestrained in the lost man's members and the faculties of his soul, sin over which he, he senses very little, if any, loathing or hatred, sin that rarely elicits shock or disgust or weeping, Sin that elicits little more than ongoing guilt from an accusing conscience, right? But rather, Paul is speaking here of the remaining sin that is accompanied by Godward sorrow. The remaining sin of a Christian, man, woman, boy, or girl, that is in conflict with their renewed will. Sin that is in conflict with renewed affection. Sin in conflict with a changed heart. In other words, Paul is a walking contradiction. Paul is a walking contradiction. He's a walking inconsistency. In his own heart and mind, Paul is a walking conflict. Do you see? That's the difference between the two. Paul is a walking contradiction. With respect to his conduct, Paul describes here 
an observable inconsistency. He acknowledges his own conduct as an objective contradiction. First, it's a, it's a, it's a contradiction that lies between his thoughts or his mind and his actions. Paul says, for what I am doing, I don't understand. It's a contradiction between his thoughts and his actions. Second, the inconsistency lies between his renewed will and his actions. That I will to do, I do not practice. What I want to do, what I desire to do, what I will to do, that I do not do. And third, the inconsistency lies between his renewed affections and his actions. But what I hate, verse 15, that I do. You see that the contradiction, his thoughts and his actions, his mind and his actions, his will and his actions, his affections and his actions, his love and his actions, his hope and his actions, his faith and his actions. The Christian is a walking inconsistency, is a bit of a walking contradiction. And that provokes within Paul, it provokes within every genuine Christian, anguish of heart. We're not living up to the standard of righteousness upon which we have placed our heart. We're not living in conformity with the one whom we love, the one who gave himself for us. Do you see? Walking contradiction. Now, when Paul says in verse 15 that he does not understand what he's doing, He's not claiming ignorance. Paul was exceedingly well-versed in the law. Concerning the law, Philippians 3, Paul was a Pharisee, an expert, an expert in the law. So he knows well the function of the law. He knows well the purpose of the law. He knows well the sanctions associated with the law. He's not sinning in the dark, so to speak. He's not sinning in ignorance. He is sinning with his eyes wide open. This is the experience of every Christian, mind you. Verse 16, he agrees with the law that it's good. Verse 22, he delights in the law. He's not claiming ignorance. What he means when he says, I don't understand, is that he doesn't get it. I don't get it. The phrase communicates a cognitive dissonance, a disapproving cognitive dissonance. Paul looks at his sin and he says, I don't get it. I don't approve. This is not what I want. This is, does not accord with what I believe. I don't understand. I, I don't understand. This is not consistent with my loves and desires and dreams and hopes. This is not consistent with who I am in Jesus Christ. I don't get it. But more than a mere cognitive inconsistency, the sin that he finds himself doing is sin that is inconsistent with his heart, his mind, his will, his affections. In our text, those faculties, you can see them in the words, in the fabric of our text. Those faculties are coordinated to demonstrate that the sinful conduct of a Christian is not merely the desire of his heart or the determination of his mind or the resolve of his will or the the, the fervency of his affections that are overcome in the activity of his sin, 
the activity of sin having to overcome each of those things, but it's the, it's the combined assault on all of those faculties, the, the combined overthrow of all of those faculties together that perplexes Paul. This is not consistent with my mind. It's not consistent with my will. It's not consistent with my affections. It's perplexing. This is often, this is often the understanding with which a Christian sins. Do you see? We don't sin in darkness. We don't sin in ignorance. We know. Often we know. And that sin, which is executed in the Christian's conduct, involves the successful conquest of every aspect of his renewed nature. Heart, mind, will, affections. Paul says, I don't get it. In fact, Paul says, I hate it. What I hate, that I do. John Owen, this is the greatest enemy that I have. Oh, that it were killed and destroyed. Oh, that I were delivered out of the power of it. Know then that in the first attempt or assault in any temptation, the most cursed sworn enemy is at hand. In setting on you and in setting on you for your utter ruin, so that it were the greatest madness in the world to throw yourself into the arms to be destroyed. don't get it. With Paul, we can say, I don't get it, right? We can abhor it. We can abominate the evil that we find at times in our own heart and mind. We can despise the thought of it with disgust. And yet we find ourselves embattled as though we have within us an enemy which refuses to be subdued and often ends up subduing us. It is a persistent enemy. It is a powerful enemy. Oh, and again, cast off its motions, and it returns again. Rebuke it by the power of grace. It withdraws for a while, and then returns again. Set it before the cross of Jesus Christ, and it does as those who came to take him in the garden. At the sight of him, they went backward and fell to the ground, but they arose again and laid their hands on him. Present hellfire to it, and it rushes into the flames. It is a persistent enemy. The fault is our own. The fault is our own. But do the conflict that arises within us over our remaining sin, our remaining corruption, it is as though sin as a personified enemy, wages war within us. That's the truth of that battle. And words fail to depict it as it really is. And yet, brothers and sisters, we can often fail to appreciate the fierceness of that battle or the danger of that battle, or the persistence and power of our enemy. And we can act like lazy sluggards in our ongoing conflict with sin. Do you see? Well, Paul then, in point two on our notes, Paul then goes on to explain our present corruption. 
he explains that conflict in terms of our present corruption. Paul presents our remaining sin in this same way, an enemy that lives and lurks within us. First, Paul vindicates the law in verse 16. He vindicates the law, verse 16. If then I do what I will not to do. In other words, with my will, I've determined in my mind, I've resolved with the strength that I have in me not to do it. So if then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. In other words, if the determination of my will accords with the law, and if he delights in the law according to the inward man, then although that inconsistency lies between his thoughts and his actions, although that inconsistency may persist, although he may sometimes act in a way that is inconsistent with his will, he nevertheless agrees with the law that it is good. And his renewed will is manifest evidence of that agreement. His renewed affections are manifest evidence of his love for God's law as good. Think about your own experience with indwelling or remaining sin. If you will not to do sin, in your determination, in your resolve, your determination and resolve are evident evidence of your agreement with the law that it is good. Do you see? If you agree that the law is good, holy, just, and good, then your renewed affections are evidence of your renewed heart. (laughs) Evidence that you see the the law of God as good. Again, the problem is not with the law. The the law is not the cause of sin. The, The law isn't even the cause of Paul's conflict. The problem is Paul's remaining sin. Paul's remaining sin. So after vindicating the law, verse 16, now Paul incriminates his own indwelling sin, verse 17. But now then, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. It's an interesting statement. A statement that has tripped many a, peop- many a person up over the centuries. We can stop right there, right? And we can make, before we even consider what Paul means by what Paul says, We can stop right there and make a very confident assertion about what Paul is clearly not saying in the text. And how can we do that? Because of other texts, clear texts of scripture. Paul is clearly not absolving himself of any responsibility for his sin. That would contradict other clear texts of scripture. There are simply too many texts that assert precisely the opposite, that Paul and all Christians are responsible for their sin. If you handle this text in a way that an Arminian would handle whosoever texts and you simply twist or ignore all of the other texts, then you'll wind up in error, right? Paul is not absolving himself of any responsibility for his sin. Rather, Paul is asserting, verse 17, that his sinful actions are not a consistent expression of his renewed heart mind, will, or affections. His sinful actions are not a consistent expression. In fact, our sinful actions are such an inconsistent expression of our renewed heart, mind, will, and affections 
that Paul ends up distinguishing the renewed man that agrees with the law of God from the flesh of the old man and even appears to disassociate himself from the old man and the sin that he commits. Do you see? For I know, verse 18, for I know that in me, that is making a distinction in my flesh. Do you see making a distinction between the new man, the regenerate man, the new creation, and the old man with his desires and lusts. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Now think with me. Three assertions that came from Dr. Murray on this text. One, we previously proved Paul's association of the flesh with the old man. We looked at that previously. The flesh is associated with the old man and the old man's lusts and desires. That flesh is sinful. Nothing good dwells in it. Okay? Two, the flesh is still associated with Paul's person. It is his flesh and it is in him. Third, Sin, therefore, in the flesh, is also associated with Paul's person. Sin is committed in his flesh. Sin is committed by Paul. Do you see? He's not absolving himself of any responsibility for sin. But what he is doing is he's drawing a distinction between the old man and the new man. Paul so associates himself with the new man and so disassociates himself from the old man that he speaks of the old man like a criminal squatter (laughs) in the dwelling place of the new. That old man is a criminal squatter in the dwelling place of the new. He speaks of the old man or the flesh as the personification of sin. The first person pronoun I here is in reference to the new man. Look at verse 17. But now Paul is speaking as a new man. He's a believer. This is not a lost man. This is a Christian. But now it is no longer I, Paul says. It's no longer I who do it. But it's that sin, that old man, the flesh, that principle of sin that dwells in me. It's through attaching sin in this way, particularly attaching sin to the actions and the desires of the flesh that Paul makes sense of the inconsistency that he makes sense of the contradiction. Do you see? He makes sense of the contradiction, makes sense of the inconsistency by thinking of himself in terms of that walking contradiction, the old man and the new man. Now, Paul draws attention to that distinction again in verse 18. In verse 18, for I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Paul has in mind, again, a distinction between the renewed man the new creation, and the old man represented by the flesh, such that that when he uses the personal pronoun in verse 18, me, he must then clarify that he speaks here of the flesh, the old man. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Make sense? There's a good example of this. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. It's at this point that the Christian's conflict is then fought. It's at this point that the war begins to rage. Ephesians chapter 4, look there at verse 17. 17. Paul says, This I say therefore, and testify in the Lord, 
that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. We've been raised to walk in newness of life. Amen? They walk, verse 18, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. We've already established established the fact that Paul isn't sinning in ignorance or in blindness. The Christian doesn't always sin in ignorance or blindness, does he? Who, speaking of these lost people, being past feeling, that's not consistent with renewed affections, is it? Being past feeling have given themselves over, have given themselves over, they have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. Is there any indication from our text in Romans 7 that Paul is giving himself over to these things? No, Paul is embattled over them. Now, Paul is clearly talking about a lost person here in Ephesians 4. And notice how this description differs from what we hear in Romans 7. The lost are described as walking in the futility of their mind, verse 17. Their understanding is darkening, darkened. Ignorance dwells with them. Their heart is blinded, verse 18. They're not fighting, nor are they feeling conviction. They're past feeling. But rather, they have given themselves over to lewdness, to uncleanness, with greediness. But, verse 20, in contrast, verse 20, you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Paul is speaking to Christians now, and he's saying, put off your old man as though there were a disassociation between you, (laughs) the new man, renewed as a new creation, and that old fleshly man, that old principle of sin that is found within your members. Paul calls your attention to a disassociation. Put that old guy off. (laughs) He only grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts. Put him off. Verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And verse 24, that you put on the new man, which was created, already been created, according to God in true righteousness and holiness. That's the conflict, you see? We begin to put off or disassociate ourselves from that old man, that flesh, that principle of sin that we find in our members. We put off that guy. We're putting on the new man. Well, Paul would say in Colossians that we've already put off the old man. We've already put on the new man. Turn to Colossians chapter 3, a couple of books to the right. Colossians chapter 3. We're dealing with both positional and practical truth at this point. Paul would say in Colossians that we've already put off the old man. Look at verse 8. But now, listen, brothers and sisters, you yourselves are to put off all these Put off these things that are associated with the old man. Put off anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have already put off the old man with his deeds and have already put on the new man. Interesting, isn't it? That new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. That new man, we were created a new man. We were made a new creation according to the image of him who created him. Awesome. 
where there is neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. So which is it, Paul? Which is it? Are we to put off the old man? Or have we already put off the old man? Paul answers, yes. <laughs> yes. Are we, to, are we to put on the new man, Paul? Or have we already put on the new man? Yes. Put off the old man. Why? Because God has put off the old man. That old man has been crucified in Jesus Christ. Put on the new man. Why? Because God has made of you a new man. One day soon, one day soon, that old man will be forever killed, <laughs> mortified. And it will be only me that remains. Right? It will be only, disassociate, disassociate yourself like Paul from the old man. It'll, I, I will be all that is left. <laughs> that old man set aside and I remain perfectly sanctified, praise God. He that began a good work in me will complete it. <laughs> But while we remain here, there is a positional and a practical aspect to this theology. Positionally, positionally, Romans chapter 6, verse 6, our old man was crucified with him so that the body of our sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Positionally, our old man crucified with Jesus Christ. Practically, day to day, we must mortify the old man with his deeds. We must put him to death. A slow and often painful process involving great warfare and anguish of heart. Do you see? So what is Paul doing then? In the language of Romans 7 back there. Paul, in the language of Romans 7, is drawing a distinction between the two. To make sense of the experienced inconsistency. For us to help us make sense of the contradiction that lies within us. And he exonerates the new man. Paul vindicates, exonerates the new man. And he associates his sin with the old man. He associates that old man entirely with his remaining sin. If he were free entirely from the old man, there would be no sin. He would be renewed after Jesus Christ. And that day is coming. Romans 7, verse 18. Thinking of that now, Paul says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. This is Paul's verdict upon the remaining corruption so associated with the old man having begun the war within him, having set out with the sword of the word to mortify the flesh now, the fruit of his experience has taught him that nothing good dwells within his flesh. It's the only judgment that he can come to. I am carnal, sold under sin. Do you see? For to will, verse 18, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good or how to perform what I will in accord with the law, I do not find. Notice now, notice in these verses, the confluence of these two realities, the old and the new being brought together. Try as he may, the fullest sense of the distinction simply cannot be made. It is Paul who is sinning. 
The fullest sense of the distinction cannot be maintained. And ultimately, we are responsible for our sin. Verse 19, for the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what it is that I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin, that old man, the flesh that dwells in me, that principle of sin that lies within my members, charging me, constraining me, exerting its influence over me to present my, the members of my body as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Paul sees himself as occupied by a criminal squatter. Make sense? He once ruled Paul with a rod of iron, as it were, but now that, that harsh, unjust slave master has been put down. He's been put down. Although he's been put down, he refuses to leave. He will not move out. <laughs> and Paul is compelled with all the weapons at his disposal to forcibly remove him. But Paul simply can't evict him. <laughs> While Paul labors to forcibly remove him, the criminal squatter uses all the weapons at his disposal to reassert his dominance. And that criminal squatter will use all the weapons that he has at his disposal. And he is not lazy. He is not sluggardly in his fight. And he, he so succeeds that he often coerces Paul into action that is entirely inconsistent with the heart, mind, will, and affections of his new man. So compelling is the old man's influence that Paul thinks of it as a form of bondage. Doesn't it feel that way? Paul said, I've been sold under sin. Brothers and sisters, on this side of eternity, we're never going to evict him. We're not going to evict him. We're called to pummel him. <laughs> to buffet our bodies. Not as one who beats the air. We need to land punches. But we're not going to evict him. There's only one who can evict him. Only one way that he is going to be evicted. Our efforts against him in this life will never cease and they cannot ever cease. As soon as you begin to cease, you begin to fail, and you begin to lose. You are beaten down. You're going to be worn out. You cannot cease. Only Jesus Christ himself will fully and final, finally ever deliver us from his presence, and then only we will remain. <laughs> Oh, and again, wherever you are, whatever you are about, this law of sin is always in you. But you can't despair over that. You can't despair over that because we serve the Lord Christ. And we're headed somewhere, aren't we? This is not our home. Our citizenship is not here. We seek a heavenly city whose builder and maker is God. We seek a dwelling place from on high, a habitation that is in heaven, right? a body reserved for us, 
where we'll be free from that body of death forever. There's a, and I intend to look it up. I've not done it yet to know uh, how much of this is truth and how much of this is myth. But there uh, apparently in Roman government was a punishment that was inflicted upon murderers. When someone murdered another human being, the sentence that was handed down against his crime was to strap the body of that dead person to his back. Chain the dead person to him such that having killed that person, he also kills himself. Right? He doesn't live, you don't live through that, that rotting corpse strapped to you. He eventually kills you also. Paul views the old man in that way. We have this defeated corpse chained to us, this wretched body of death. And if you're not doing all that you can in the power of his spirit, utilizing the means or the weapons that God gives us for our warfare that are mighty in God, that are mighty in God, if you're not using those means and actively engaging in warfare against that dead corpse strapped to you, you're dying. John Owen, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Wherever you are, whatever you're about, this law of sin is always in you, always with you, in the best that you do and in the worst that you do. Men little consider what a dangerous companion is always at home with them. When they are in company, when alone, by night or by day, all is one, sin is with them. There is a living coal continually in their houses, which if it be not looked unto, will fire them and may consume them. That coal will burn your house down. Oh, the woeful security of poor souls. How little do most men think of his inbred enemy that is never away from home. How little, for the most part, does the watchfulness of any professor answer the danger of their state and condition. That's a powerful statement. How little, for the most part, does the watchfulness of any Christian answer the danger of their state and condition. Often our watchfulness, our vigilant is, vigilance is woefully lacking, right? It's this ongoing conquest of indwelling sin, exerting its influence in the faculties of his soul that leads Paul to this internal conflict that he describes in the text of Romans 7. And all Christians can say, amen, I know exactly what he's talking about. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul describes it this way. The flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. On the one hand, we're to see in these statements of Paul the reality of the fight that we're to be engaged in. We're to see the reality of that fight. We have a deadly enemy and we are responsible. Responsible Responsibility has been laid upon us. Necessity has been laid upon us. Woe to you 
if you do not fight and mortify the flesh. However, however, we're also intended to see that this experience is the experience of every Christian. It's the experience of the Christian. Far from being an indictment of condemnation, your ongoing fight against sin, your ongoing hatred for remaining sin is evidence of a work of grace in your heart. So don't submit yourself or subject yourself to the condemnation of the law. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We're going to get there very soon. Don't subject yourself to the condemnation of the law. This is an evidence of a work of grace in your heart. Just as the absence of this fight is an indication that you are still in the bonds of your iniquity. The absence of this fight is an indication that you are a lost person. Just as that is true, is just as true that the evidence of this fight within you is an evidence of God's grace at work in your heart. He's given you the power, the will, the desire, the affections to fight. You agree with the law that it is holy, just, and good. That's why there's a fight. You hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's why there's a battle, you see. The question that we would have to ask is this. How comfortably are you living with the criminal squatter? How comfortably, how at ease are you cohabitating with that brute, right? This leads us to point three on your notes and our present conflict, our present conflict. I find then a law, verse 21, verse 21. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. I find then a general rule, an axiomatic axiomatic truth, an inviolable principle, that although I resolve in my mind to do that which accords with the law as good, and although the determination of my will is strengthened within me to execute that which is good, that which I've resolved in my mind to do, I find that evil is continuously present with me. Sin is relentless in its exertions. Sin will not relent. Sin is a tireless enemy. And, Paul, and, and often sin takes a lot of advantage when you're tired. <laughs> it's interesting how that a connection. Sin is tireless. Paul says, I am one who wills to do good, verse 22, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. The old man notwithstanding, I delight in the law of God in my innermost being. The inward man being the seat of our delights, the inward man being the seats of our desires, the seat of our affections. Notice how here, too, how head and heart are connected. Always head and heart connected. The connection between light and heat. Lost and saved people are distinguished by what and who they love. (laughs) They're distinguished by loves. Psalm 1 says, The blessed man finds his delight in the law of the Lord. And what is the evidence of that? He meditates in his law day and night. That's the evidence that the law of God is his delight. Light, the law of God, produces that heat, those affections, those delights, in a converted person. A lost man can't say that. His delight is not of the law of the Lord. 
He doesn't day and night meditate upon it. His life isn't infused with it. Why? Because his heart is not set upon it. It's not his delight. A lost man can't say this. But wherever that delight is found in the heart of the blessed man, the old man is found there laboring in opposition. The old man still there. Paul describes the conflict in verse 23. Verse 23. But I see then another law in my members. That law, that principle of sin, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity. First blush, reading through the text, someone would say, how can Paul speak of sin being in captivity to sin, especially after Romans 6? Can we see that by this point? By this point in the text, can we understand how Paul would feel as though he were brought into captivity to this principle of sin? When this principle of sin so opposes and so rebels that Paul is constrained to do the very thing that goes against his heart, his mind, his will and affections, doesn't that feel like captivity? Doesn't it feel like bondage? That's what Paul's saying here. Brought me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my faculties, in my members. That principle of sin exists within his flesh. That old man seeks to reassert or reestablish its wicked influence, its evil reign, and it is once again referred to as a bitter enemy that continually rages against his thoughts, rages against his beliefs, rages, rages against his desires, the affections of the new man. And Paul has established here a contrast. It's a contrast between that which he has willed, that which he has judged to be good by the law, that which concurs with the law of his mind, which delights in the law of God, and he's established a contrast between that and that which he has not willed, that which he has judged to be evil. He has identified that which is good with himself, with the new man. And he has identified that which is evil with his flesh, with the old man. And that principle of sin that continues to dwell with him. Which one is it that Paul relates to who he really and truly is. Which of the two, setting up the contrast, which of the two would Paul say is him, is really me, right? We think about what we have, what we've been given in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been justified. We have right standing with God. Having been justified through faith, mind you, not anything to do with you, not any of your works, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. I'm reconciled to God. All of my sin, past, present, and future, has been moved from my ledger to Christ's ledger. He has taken it all upon himself, and he nailed it to the cross, having died to sin that the body of our sin might be done away with. And not only that, but then the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, his perfect sinless life, having fully satisfied the law's demands in every thought, every word, every deed, perfectly, that righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ has been moved from his ledger over to mine. And now God treats me as a justified, righteous 
person, which apart from that work, I am not. You are not, right? So who are we? Brothers and sisters, it's a matter of faith to say, I have been justified. I have been redeemed. I've been forgiven of my sin. Look at what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for me. He has cleansed me. He has made of me a new creation. I have a place in his household as a son of the living God. I have an inheritance. I have been made a co-heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's waiting for me. It's there. In heaven, undefiled, reserved for me. It's never fading away. It's never going away. In billions of eons, it will be as glorious as it is this moment. Who am I? I'm a son of the king. I'm a redeemed sinner, redeemed by grace. I've been one who has been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Who are you? Who are you truly? Who are you? You're a son or a daughter of the king. Not just a daughter. A, in essence, firstborn son. That's why he calls us all sons. You are a co-heir with Christ. An adopted son, to be sure. (laughs) But a son nonetheless. Who is Paul truly? You see the disassociation. This is not what I want. I don't get it. This is not what I want. But I find this principle present with me. What should that provoke within us, brother, sister? That should provoke within us a holy disgust with anything that defiles. A holy disgust, a hatred for that sin that betrays who I am as a blood-bought son or daughter of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see? Which one is most identified with your inward man? Which one is consistent with your heart, your mind, your will, your affections? These two are set in opposition against one another in every respect, in every respect. That principle of sin at at war with who we are in Jesus Christ. We hear the anguish of Paul's heart, don't we? We sense in our own experience Paul's anguish of heart. However, it should give us great joy, great comfort, great encouragement to know that we do not battle alone. We do not battle alone. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Even now, we have his spirit who is the guarantor of that eventual, forever, putting away of sin, putting away of the old man. There is no hope of deliverance apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are here today and you are enslaved to your sin, if sin dominates you, this doesn't describe you, what Paul is saying here, but rather you find yourself to be reflected in the lost man, the old man, the man of the flesh, The only hope that you have of deliverance is the Lord Jesus Christ. You must turn to him in faith. And the Lord Jesus Christ promises you, promises you to make of you a new creation. To make of you a new creation, 
to free you from your slavery to sin and to make you a son in the kingdom. He is glorious in our sight. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, our, our hearts are lifted up in praise and gratitude and love for all, Lord, that you have given to us in and through the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, your Son. And we are grateful to you, Lord, um, for the promises that are ours through faith in him, promises that sin will not have dominion over us, promises that we have been made a new creation, promises that the old man has been crucified, that we are a new man, promises for help with strength and aid in putting off the old man and putting on the new man, promises that involve our sanctification, our growth, our maturity, and eventually, Lord, our glorification. When we are with him in eternity, we see him as he is. Grateful to you for these glorious promises. Help us now, Lord, uh, to live as we truly are, uh, to live uh, by faith uh, in who you have made us to be, that through your spirit and through the means of your word, uh, we may put off the old man more and more consistently, more and more every passing day, every passing year, renewed uh, by your word after the new man which you created, after the image of him who created it. And help us, Lord, to persist, to persevere in that battle until you finally call us home. Trusting in you that what we have committed to you, that deposit that we have made to you, you're able to keep against that day. Trusting, Lord, that you'll preserve us. Thank you for these blessings. Uh, thank you, Lord, for your help in living the Christian life, that you do not leave us orphans, but that you come to us by your spirit. We pray by your spirit that you would cause us to triumph in Christ for your glory. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.